RadioInfluence.com. This is Beyond the Badge on Radio Influence. A look inside the biggest and most controversial news stories you need to know now. One of the country's most relied upon law enforcement analysts, Vincent Hill. Hey, good evening and welcome to Beyond the Badge. Of course, I am your host, Vincent Hill, and it's after Christmas. I hope everyone had a great Christmas and is having a great holiday season. I can't believe Christmas has come and gone. 2017 is just about over. Uh, And if you remember last week, I told you I was taking my mom out to Nassau, Bahamas for Christmas. Uh, We flew out of Atlanta on Friday, got down to Fort Lauderdale. Of course, it was 80 degrees already. Uh, Took the short drive over to Miami, got on the cruise ship uh, and headed out to the Bahamas. And Man, the weather was was really nice. Uh, it's always great to be in Nassau uh, at any time, but the weather was really nice. It was about 85 degrees uh, that weekend in Nassau. I tried to get my mom to go uh, snorkeling, but uh, that didn't quite work out. You know, she's scared of any water that's higher than what uh, the bathtub will hold. So. Yeah, I tried several times to get her her to go snorkeling, uh, but to no avail. So then I tried parasailing, and that was even worse. So I didn't get a chance to do any excursions, but truthfully, that's not what the trip was about. It was about me being able to pay it forward to my mother and to give her a great Christmas memory. And I think she got that. I, I think back to about seven or eight years ago when my church uh, had gone on a cruise, and yeah, I'm not ashamed to say this. You know, seven or eight years ago, financially, I definitely wasn't in the position I'm in now, and I wasn't able to afford that cruise. Uh, so basically, my mom fronted the entire cost of that cruise for me to go out there, and I told her then that you know I would definitely get her back and take her on a cruise. So I was able to do that. It was a blessing to be able to do that and to get her out to Nassau, Bahamas, uh, for a few days. So we got back Christmas Eve. Uh, come to find out my father had checked himself into the emergency room. So we landed in Atlanta about 3.30, got to my place. Uh, I was trying to relax for a bit before I had to drive her to Carolina anyway, but then we found out that my dad was in the hospital. He had checked himself into the emergency room. So, of course, I hauled butt. Uh, from Atlanta to South Carolina, I made it in record time. I think I made it in about two hours and 45 minutes. And it's typically about a three and a half hour drive. Uh, so thankfully, uh, I didn't come across any state troopers. Um, but at any rate, my dad got released from the hospital today. Uh, he's doing much better. A little backstory about that. Back in 2000, when I was living out in California, uh, he had a brain aneurysm. And since then, of course, he's susceptible to seizures. Uh, So the uh, medication they have him on is called Dilantin. And basically, my dad checked himself into the hospital, said he was having numbness down the right side of his body. Uh, Come to find out his Dilantin level was a little low. It was a four, and it should be around a 10. Uh, So, you know, they monitored him for a few days made sure he was okay. He's good to go. He got released today. So, you know, unfortunately, 
He spent Christmas Eve and Christmas Day uh, inside the hospital, but you know, thankfully he's he's alive, he's well, and uh, you know, my prayers are always out to my family. And you know, as many of us know, many of us may be going through this. You know, especially when you're my age, I'll be 45 next month, which means your parents, of course, are getting much older and, you know, they can't bounce back from certain things the way they did. And you definitely have to monitor their health, especially when you're dealing with someone that had a a brain aneurysm. So I'm very thankful uh, that my dad was, uh, for the most part, okay. Um, Yeah, I, I pray that, you know, he takes his medication, he takes the right dosage and you know he comes out of this little hump uh, because we we never want to think about having to do the what I say the inevitable uh, with our parents we never really although we know it's coming we I don't care what you do you're never really prepared for it and I know at this point in my life there's a whole lot of stuff that I still want to do that I still want my parents to be able to be a part of, uh, I got big dreams. I want to win an Emmy. I want to have my own show. It's a whole lot of stuff I still want to do while my parents are still here. So I'm not quite ready uh, for either one of them to leave. So I'm thankful that he's okay. Uh, I thank everyone that prayed for him, all my friends on social media, all my friends, my close friends and family uh, that were there for him. I appreciate you so much. So I'm out here in L.A. I flew out the evening of Christmas. I flew out at about 8 o'clock Christmas night uh, to L.A. And, of course, the time change uh, that you go through from Atlanta to California, California being three hours behind, it always messes you up. So I landed last night, Christmas night, at about 10.30 L.A. time, which, of course, was about 1.30 Atlanta time, which is what my body was and is accustomed to. So I'm out here for the next few days, uh, a little bit of work, like for my real job, and a little bit of uh, TV as well. So earlier today, I was down at HLN here in Los Angeles, and I was on the uh, Michaela Pereira show uh, talking about two teens that were killed in Indiana uh, the day before Thanksgiving of 2017 and how that case is still not solved, and even though police have a person of interest, you know, without either physical evidence, DNA, fingerprint, you name it, but they were killed in a park, so I doubt fingerprints are an option here, without any physical evidence, although one of the uh, young ladies that was killed, one of the teens that was killed, took a picture of a male that was following them. The picture is kind of grainy, and even with the sketch artist, uh, and this guy that is a person of interest, does indeed look like this guy. That doesn't necessarily mean that police have enough to charge this guy because right now it's all circumstantial. Uh, She also recorded a voice recording of this killer who basically said down the hill, which is where they were found. But again, it's circumstantial because when you're talking about voice recognition, you need eyewitnesses. And of course, the eyewitnesses in this case, unfortunately, are not alive to tell their story or to identify this voice. Uh, So, you know, it made me think, you know, here we are almost a year later, and this case is still not solved. And, you know, this family just went through Christmas 
well, these families, I should say, because it was two females. They weren't sisters. Uh, they were just close friends. So these two families just had to go through their first Christmas without their loved ones. And, man, I, I couldn't imagine as as a father how that would feel to go through a Christmas without your child being there, especially when your child was killed the way these young ladies were. Now, police really haven't released exactly how they died. We know they were murdered. That's a given. But they really haven't released the details, whether they were sexually assaulted before they were killed and exactly how they were killed. Um, and I don't, I'm pretty sure they're holding this in because they don't want anything in this case to go wrong. They definitely don't want to speculate and then come to find out later they were wrong about what they speculated. So I'm sure that's why a lot of this stuff hasn't been released to the public. Uh, but the family is definitely looking for answers. It happened in Delphi, Indiana, which is about 25 miles north of Lafayette, Indiana. And again, there is a person of interest uh, in this case, and his name is Daniel Nations. Uh, He has a pretty checkered past, you know, sexual assault, uh, some domestic assaults, things of that nature. And he almost fits the composite sketch to a T. But right now, that's all circumstantial, because as you know, you need physical evidence tying someone to a scene or we need a confession. Now, this person being as hardened a criminal as he is, I doubt we're going to get a confession out of this because why would he do that? Um, So, you know, it it happened in the woods. It happened in February. It was cold. Maybe there's something there that police have recovered that they can tie to this guy or maybe someone else in the park saw this guy just before these murders happened and they don't realize what they saw. Like maybe he parked a vehicle somewhere and because I doubt he walked to this park from wherever he was, maybe he parked a vehicle somewhere and someone saw a license plate that they just don't recall right now or they saw him acting suspicious before these murders and maybe he approached someone else in the park that day. Uh, So these are the types of tips that investigators are going to have to get to make this case solvable. Uh, Again, either DNA evidence, a confession, or those tips from the public that say, yes, this Mr. Nations guy is the killer of these young women because I saw him in the park five minutes before the murders. And he, you know, approached me and was acting suspicious and I ran away or, or something like that. So. You know, as I said on Michaela's show today, this case could take a year, which we're almost there. It could take several years. But the thing about murder, here's the thing. There's no perfect murder. There's always something left at the scene, especially when it's a crime of opportunity, as I believe this was. This guy just happened to be in the park. He happened to see these two young teens walking by, and he took that opportunity to do what he did. Now, when you do crimes of opportunity, there's not a lot of planning in it. So there's something that the criminal, the killer, did that will lead police to him eventually. So I want to switch gears and take it back towards uh, Georgia. Now, there's uh, three officers 
that were um, recently charged with murder. And it's a very interesting case because it's not really uh, what you typically think of as far as when police get charged with murder. You know, you assume that there's a shooting uh, and and all of that other stuff that we typically see in the mainstream media. Now, uh, these three officers, Officer Rhett Scott, Michael Howell, and Sergeant Lee Copeland were with the Washington County Sheriff's Office, which is about two and a half hours uh, out of Atlanta. So there was a call, of course, that's why police show up, of a guy that was acting suspicious. Uh, and of course, when police, when people call 911, police show up. So the very first responding officer uh, encounters an individual. At the time, he doesn't know his name. The individual turns out to be 58-year-old Yuri Martin. Uh, so apparently the call was, again, a male acting suspicious and asking people for water. Now, to give a little backstory to this, uh, this individual, Yuri Martin, lived about 20 miles away, but he would make that walk for whatever reason. Maybe it was health. Maybe it was exercise. Maybe it was he didn't have a vehicle. He would make that walk uh, quite frequently to this other town to go visit with family. So, of course, as you're walking, yeah, you get hot. You probably get thirsty. Anyway, so police respond to this call as they're obligated to do by law because they got a call. Um, And at some point, and I don't believe there was body cam, there's some cell phone video, but A, I never rely on cell phone video because it usually starts recording right when the stuff hits the fan and not before. So the slight cell phone video that I did see was Mr. Martin being tased. Now, Mr. Martin died because of cardiac arrest due to the tasers. Now, these officers are being charged with uh, first-degree murder, manslaughter, uh, assault, and false imprisonment, I believe. False imprisonment. Because according to the family attorney, he had done nothing wrong. Well, that's debatable. That's neither here nor there. I wasn't there. I don't Monday morning quarterback. Um, But here's the problem I see in this, right? And again, I wasn't there. I don't know the circumstances. But what I can speak on is I've seen people get tased and it has no effect on them. I've seen people under the influence get tased several times and it has no effect on them. Here's where the problem is going to lie in this prosecution on these murder charges. And even, I think, in the manslaughter charges, which is a lesser charge than, of course, murder. Of course, murder, there has to be the intent, the intent to kill that individual. And it typically involves a premeditated attempt. Well, you can eliminate premeditation because police were just responding to a call. Now, you can also eliminate really the intent of homicide because the officers were using less than lethal force. They were using a device that is authorized by their department as well as many hundreds of other departments in this country, a device that is less than lethal to be used to detain an individual long enough to affect your arrest. It's the same as your pepper spray, your aspartame, your soft, empty hand control. All of those things on the use of force continuum. It was less than lethal. So to to get a murder conviction, 
out of this is going to be an uphill battle because the officers use less than lethal force to what they believe needed to be done to affect their arrest. Now, again, his lawyer says he wasn't doing a crime. There's no body cam footage. Maybe he resisted. We don't know. But they were using less than lethal force to affect their arrest. The fact that he had cardiac arrest could be attributed to many, many factors. He was 58 years old. Maybe he had heart problems. Maybe he had heart problems in the past. What I've seen when I've seen taser deaths is that the person was under the influence of a narcotic and your heart is already racing. And when you take a jolt of electricity, then what happens? Your, your heart starts to beat faster. You eventually go into cardiac arrest. So there's several factors that could have led to the cardiac arrest. But I think it's going to be a difficult task. Now, granted, Mr. Martin was black. He was unarmed. The three officers were white. So I can assure you where his attorneys, Mr. Martin's family's attorney, are, are definitely going to go with this. And yet in the fact that it's really not a heavily uh, black area, I can see where they're going to go with this, that it was all about race. But the fact is, we don't know what caused the heart attack. Even at this point, it's going to be hard to prove an assault or a false imprisonment because here's the thing. Nobody, Mr. Martin's not here to testify. The officers received the call. Eventually, two other officers show up after the first responding officer. Maybe he called for backup. We don't know. I'm sure that'll come out in the trial. But to say an assault happened on Mr. against Mr. Martin is going to be hard to prove. And to say false imprisonment happened against Mr. Martin is going to be hard to prove without knowing all of the circumstances of this case. Now, it's easy, again, to say it was about race. It's easy to say he was unarmed. It's easy to say all of this stuff. But we don't know what happened at the scene of that incident. We don't know if Mr. Martin resisted. We don't know if Mr. Martin had a warrant. Let's think back to Charleston, South Carolina, and Walter Scott and Officer Michael Slager. The reason Walter Scott ran is because he had a warrant out against him for child support, and he knew it. Did I agree with that shooting? Absolutely not. I've said that. I've gone on record to say that. But just based on the fact that he was tased and he died does not make this an open and shut case to be able to effectively charge and convict. That's the important part because you can charge a goat with eating cheese if you wanted to, but it's it's to charge and convict these officers of murder. That's going to be a lot harder than than the, the people of that small town realize. Now, yeah, it sent the small town in an uproar that he died. But first of all, this isn't the first taser death to occur in the United States. And the conviction rate on those taser deaths, the only one that I know of 
happened in Georgia where the former officer was charged and convicted and given 20 years. I don't know all the circumstances behind that, but people die of taser deaths all the time. It doesn't make it murder. It happened in Nashville to a Vanderbilt Vanderbilt student when I was on the job. It happens quite regularly because people's heart explode, whether they have a heart condition, which officers don't know of at the time, or they're under the influence and their heart just works overtime and finally explodes. Officers can't control that. You know, it's it's a dang if you do, dang if you don't situation because people don't want police to kill anybody. They don't want them to take out their guns and shoot people because it just makes them racist thugs. But then when a police officer uses less than lethal force and someone dies as a result of it, then they're still just racist thugs. So it's a no-win situation for these officers. When you're out in the street and you're dealing with individuals, and yes, he was unarmed, but how many times have we seen police get hurt or killed by quote-unquote unarmed individuals. So I'll be interested to see where this case goes, where this trial goes. Heck, I may even, once the trial starts, take the two-hour drive over to this county and sit in the courtroom just to get a feel of it. And maybe from there, I can actually come back and do an episode of Beyond the Badge from having been in the courtroom because I kind of want to get a sense of all of the evidence, right? What happened when police arrived? What steps did Mr. Martin do? Because remember, I always say police respond based on the subject or suspect's actions. I assure you these officers didn't just step out of the car and tase the guy, Mr. Martin, just because he was walking down the street. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. Yes, then that is an assault. If an officer is just driving by, he's like, oh, here's a guy. I just want to tase him. That's assault. But remember, police received the call, a 911 call. Whether it was justified or whatever, the police received a 911 call of a guy acting suspiciously. That's it. That's why they showed up. So I want to hear all the evidence. I want to hear what the responding officer, the first officer on the scene says. Because he did give a brief statement uh, before this indictment. He's, in his incident report, he says, uh, received the call, approached the individual who I described as a black male who fit the description. And I asked him, hey, are you okay? You need anything? What are you doing? What's your name? And the, indiv- and the individual that I encountered responded with, who are you? And I, he kept walking. So that tells me right there that... Mr. Martin, for whatever reason, ignored the police officer, which is not against the law. But from a police point of view, I've been there. Usually when I ask someone a question and they try to evade that question, or if I come in contact with someone and they continue to walk, my spidey sense, my police sense goes up that something's not right. Now let's take a step back with that spidey sense, that police sense, Police had just received the call of a guy acting suspicious. And now when 
the responding officer approaches a guy who he believes to be the individual in the description when he says, hey, you okay? What are you doing? You need anything? What's your name? The individual keeps walking and says, who are you? His police sense went up. Maybe that's why the other officer showed up. Maybe he keyed on the radio and said, hey, I've encountered the individual and I asked him some questions and he kept walking. Can you send another car? Why send another car? It's officer safety. Because let's say the responding officer encountered Mr. Uh, Martin and an altercation ensued and the officer's out there by himself and he thought his only option would have been to use deadly force to shoot Mr. Martin. So it's officer safety, not just from a physical standpoint, but also a use of force control the situation standpoint. Because you don't have to use deadly force all the time when you're dealing with one unarmed individual when you have two officers versus if that officer was alone and a scuffle broke out and he thought he was overpowered and he thought he could articulate that the only justification, the only way to end this situation would have been deadly force. And then I want to hear what the other officers have to say. And then I even want to hear from all the people that witnessed this Not just the person that caught the last two seconds of it on their cell phone, but all the people that are outside. Because A, I bet all of their stories won't be identical. And B, it's going to yield certain information that the public's not privy to right now. Because you may have a citizen, for example, in the shooting in Nashville, James Casey Holmes, that I used to patrol and the officer shot and killed an individual who was armed with a gun, the police officer's statement matched exactly from a witness statement who was black, and the person shot by police was black, and the officer was white, but her statement matched. She said, yes, I saw the individual pull out the gun and point it at the police officer, and the police officer attempted to kick the gun away, but he was too far away, so the officer fired Her story, an independent witness, her story corroborated the police officer's story. So, again, this case is not open and shut. It's not going to go in there and you're going to get 25 years in prison, no parole, yada, yada, yada. This case may take a while before it's over. It may take months of testimony from these police officers from these witnesses who may or may not corroborate the police account of what happened on that day when Mr. Martin was tased, remember, less than lethal force, no intent of murder. It's hard to charge an officer with assault when they are acting in accordance with the line of duty when they're acting in accordance with the use of force continuum. So here's what I think this case will come down to. What actions did Mr. Martin take to cause these officers to pull out their taser and tase him? Because for whatever reason, these officers wanted to put handcuffs on Mr. Martin, whether it was to detain him for questioning or arrest him, They wanted to put handcuffs on Mr. Martin. What actions did Mr. Martin do 
to cause these officers to use their taser. Now, if there's an independent witness that says, hey, Mr. Martin was just standing there, wasn't doing anything, and they kept tasing him and tasing him and tasing him and tasing him, and he wasn't resisting, and they weren't saying you're under arrest, and they just pulled him out and tased him, yeah, you might have a problem. These officers would have been wrong. And yeah, if that's the case, then they likely should be charged. <laughs> but charged with murder? Let's, let's think about this. Let's go back a couple years to the city of Baltimore. And there were six police officers. Six, not even three. Six police officers charged with the murder of Freddie Gray. And none of those officers, not one of those officers, during the takedown, during the handcuffing, during the movement of Freddie Gray from the ground to the van, none of those officers even used the amount of force of a taser. And they were charged with murder. And you see how that went. So when you're talking three officers, again, acting in the line of duty, using less than lethal force for a jury to come back and convict them of murder. I really don't see a lot of chances in that. So I'm hoping for the family's sake that there's not someone in their ear telling them that, yeah, they're going to get a conviction and yada, yada, yada. Like we've seen in the past with Freddie Gray's family and, Michael Brown's family and Trayvon Martin's family and all of these other families that we've seen on the mainstream media. I'm, I'm hoping that someone's not in their ear pumping their head up with that because it's not that easy. It is not that easy when these officers were doing their job. Now, take color out of it. Take unarmed out of it. Take he was 58 years old out of it, but put into it that police received a call. Had they not received a call, I guarantee they wouldn't have come across Yuri Martin that day. I promise you, unless they just happened upon him, but I doubt they would have even made contact with him because he was just walking down the street. He was just walking down the street. But since police got a call, that's why they came in contact with him. And that's why the situation ended up the way it did. Had it gone the other way and these officers just drove by and they're like, oh, here's a guy. Yeah, I'm going to get out of my car and I'm going to just tase him. And then I'm going to tase him again. And I'm going to tase him again until his heart explodes. That's murder. That is murder. That's first degree murder because you had the intent and you acted with malice. The problem here is no prosecutor. I don't care who it is. No prosecutor can prove malice. No prosecutor in this case can prove intent. That's a big problem. It's a big, big problem for this case. So as this case moves forward in court, I'll be sure to stay on top of it again so I can bring it to you. 
I can tell you exactly what's going on in the courtroom and what goes on with, if any, convictions in this case. All right, we're just about out of time. This is the last show of 2017. Can you believe it? This year is gone. And again, I thank you for uh, listening every week like you guys do. I know there's some loyal listeners out there. Uh, I wish I could name them all, but I'm afraid I would forget someone, and I definitely don't want to offend anyone. But there's a lot of loyal listeners that uh, message me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. I appreciate all the love. Again, next year is going to be even greater for Beyond the Badge. As you continue to make this show what it is, it's not me. It's you, the listeners, that make this show exactly what it is. And with that, uh, it is time for my 10-7 segment. And this week, I'm honoring Officer Andrew Camarelli, California Highway Patrol. His end of watch was this past Sunday, Christmas Eve, 2017. Officer Andrew Camarelli was killed when his patrol car was struck by a drunk driver on Interstate 880 near Route 92 in Hayward. He and his partner were parked on the shoulder of the freeway when the vehicle struck the rear of the patrol car at a high rate of speed shortly before midnight. This officer didn't make it to Christmas Day. Officer Camarelli, who was in the passenger seat, suffered fatal injuries in the collision. His partner was treated and released from a local hospital. The driver who struck them was also injured and faces numerous charges pending his release from the hospital. Officer Camarelli had served with the California Highway Patrol for 16 months. He is survived by his wife, daughter, two sons, parents, brother, and sister, who will never ever look at Christmas Eve or look at Christmas Day the same because while many of us were waiting to see what we had under the tree, this officer's family was at the hospital watching this young man pass away at the result of a drunk driver who faces numerous charges, as he should. And one of those charges, I assure you, will be vehicular homicide, and that will be an easy conviction to get. I thank you. Happy holidays to you. Happy New Year to you. And I will see you next week right here on Beyond the Badge on RadioInfluence.com. Good night. To continue the conversation, get updates on the show, and to find out when you can see him on television, follow Vincent on Twitter at Vincent Hill TV. That's at Vincent Hill TV. This has been Beyond the Badge on Radio Influence. This is a sitting ringside with David Penzer. Quick Fix on Radio Influence. Paul White is a great guy, and I always love, uh, I might have mentioned this in the earlier episode, but uh, the guy puts a, uh, uh, a a cigarette in his hand, and it looks like he's uh, he's holding a toothpick. And the guy <laughs> puts a beer bottle in his hand, and it looks like he's holding one of those mini, bo- you know, airplane bottles that i mean the guy has huge huge appendages uh you know hands and feet and uh it's just uh i would certainly want to stay on the right side of paul white for sure well speaking of paul white just really quick here and this is not going to get any any heat with him but would you say looking at his career obviously now that it's it's winding down i think we can say that safely would you say 
he had better matches in WCW or in WWE. Probably WWE. He was more seasoned. I mean, the guy literally had only had a, a few matches when he became the giant. I right. remember they we were in Chicago, I believe. They brought him in, and somebody was managing him at the time and trying to, you know, get him in. And they saw him, and they uh, and they said, you know, pretty much on the spot, we're going to call him the Giant, and he's going to be Andre's son to play off the feud with Hulk Hogan and Andre the Giant for WrestleMania three. And they pretty much threw him in the ring and and protected him for a while until he was able to learn a little bit more about the business. And and so, I mean, the guy literally got thrown in there as a greenhorn, and. Uh, uh, you know, got a huge push. So I would say that probably WWE only because, like I said, he was able to uh, become much more seasoned when he went there uh, and, and, and learned their style uh, of wrestling. And uh, and he's had some good matches with uh, Braun Strowman, even in the later parts of his career. He's had been some good stuff. So uh, the guy could still go, but, uh, you know, injuries take their toll, especially when you're that big a guy. And uh, he looks fantastic. Last time I saw him, uh, uh, he looks as skinny as the first time I ever saw him in Chicago. So I just remember seeing him doing drop kicks, and he would he came off the top rope a couple times in WCW, and I was he like, could Mike. do he could do a moonsault. Apparently, I never saw it. Holy shit! But I was, but I was like, why wouldn't they? I, you know, when I was riding with Kevin Sullivan, Kevin was booking him, and I'd say, why? Why wouldn't you do a moonsault? Have him do a moonsault. And he'd say, Panther, he's the giant. You don't want giants doing moonsaults. And I, you know, you got to learn the psychology of the business. You don't want giants doing moonsaults. And I'm like, but it would be so cool visually to see yes. this big guy doing a moonsault. And not to mention, he'd probably kill the guy he landed on. But, uh, but yeah, that didn't, they never let him. They protected him. And uh, now that I know a little bit more about what I know a little bit more about, probably Kevin was right. But, uh, it's still. I'm, I'm gonna. I'm gonna stick to the fact that it still would have been a cool visual if not for uh, one time. I never told you that I had a weird run in with uh, with the Big Show, um, uh, the Giant, when I was actually in Tampa. Um, gosh, I was probably about. Oh my God, twelve, thirteen years old. We were at a Baskin Robbins. Me and my mom, my dad, my sister. So we're in there, and I'm looking at the flavors or whatever. So I'm looking at them, and I think I said something. I smarted off in there. I, know, I said, imagine that. that. Yeah. I smarted off. I said something to my dad, like, yeah, whatever, you know, and my dad didn't put up with much, but I, I don't know. I just pushed the limits. And anyway, I kid you not. I heard this voice from behind my dad say, I've got this. And I'm not even paying attention because I'm looking at the ice cream. Dude puts his hand on my shoulder. I turn around. He goes, don't talk to your father like that. And I swear to God. God, I looked up and I, I didn't know what to say. I, I couldn't say anything. I mean, not because I was awestruck, but I was scared to death. Oh, I knew exactly who he was, but I mean, it wasn't like someone just walked up to me like a normal size of my dad. I mean, this guy was a skyscraper, so I couldn't be like, oh, hey, such and such. I was more worried about. Did you ask him for his autograph? For his autograph, once you calmed no, down, I didn't say anything, Dave. My literally, <laughs> my voice was just gone. I feared for my life. Sitting ringside with David Penzer can be found on Apple Podcast, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Play, and RadioInfluence.com. 